0: We're trying to figure out kids and learning inside an artificial environment and then throw them out into a natural learning environment and think that they're prepared for that. Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Learner's Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, And in this episode, my good friend and colleague Bruce Dixon and I catch up after a bit of a podcasting hiatus, and if I do say so myself, it was quite the catch-up. We discuss a couple of powerful texts that have come across our radar lately. Uh, The first is a video by blogger and TV producer Carol Black on the unnatural state of affairs in schools, and the second, a new book by Yuval Harari titled 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, in which he makes some powerfully challenging statements about education moving forward into the future. So just a warning, this gets pretty edgy at times, so buckle up if you're going to listen. Just a quick reminder that if you like this episode or any of the other 53 podcasts in our series, we'd love it if you jumped over to iTunes and joined the thousands of others or maybe dozens of others who have given us some love there. And also, head on over to modernlearners.com to get the latest info on our courses, our on site labs, and our modern learners community. Our next cohort of Change School, by the way, starts in January. And the news is we're putting together a new Europe Africa cohort next year as well. Email me at will at modernlearners.com if you have any questions or if you want more details. But for now, sit back, maybe grab an adult beverage, and enjoy. This 45-minute conversation that I know will push your thinking. Thanks so much for listening. Well, hey, Bruce, we are back finally from a long vacation, a long podcast vacation. Um, and we're, we're back to try to make some sense of the world after, after uh, a few oh weeks of traveling and talking and whatever else. You're in Perth getting ready to be a grandfather again.
1: How's I that going? Am. I'm doing it. Yep, I am on the other side of the globe and uh, as far away from Melbourne as I can be. Uh, it's great to be over here and uh, obviously great to be near my daughter, my uh, my teacher daughter, who's about to give birth to our second grandchild. So that's a bit of a hoot lap next week. And you, in the meantime, have been touching ground in Europe and various parts of the world fairly continuously in the last few weeks.
0: Yes, it's been a whirlwind of, of travel and trying to
1: stay upright <laughs> and all sorts of yeah. other, other fun things. But um it's normally, been... normally, I would have said not being able to stay upright was some beverage yeah. that might have secreted, you know, <laughs> but I think you're going to tell me it was something more than that. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think I'm. Uh, it's okay though. I'm navigating it. But uh, no, it's been a it's been a really interesting couple of weeks or a couple of months actually, going to lots yeah. of different countries. Um, was in Vienna and Zurich and Edmonton and um, lots of other places. Uh, Vancouver, talking to people. Um, just learning more. I mean, that's the one thing about the yeah. – it's a, it's a real privilege to get to be able to travel, even though sometimes it's kind of a nightmare. But <laughs> um, it is a real privilege to get to go to other places and talk to other people, get other perspectives, see the world um, a little bit differently from the way things are happening here in the States primarily. And, um, yeah, it's been a – as we kind of come to the close of, of this year, I know it's, we got a couple of months, but um, – pretty much uh, the travel season's winding down. So it's been an yeah. amazing year. It's been an amazing year considering all the different places that I've been able to go and, and
1: just learn a lot. So I'm interested in some of that. And and obviously, you, I mean, I know you've been speaking to some some large audiences and some very significant ones. Um, most recently, I think, or, or certainly in the last few weeks you spoke to, I think, some of the thousand people who attended the IB conference and, I'm interested in your observations, some reflections on those travels and the people you met with.
0: Well, yeah, 1,800 people actually in Vienna, which was a uh, uh, pretty interesting experience. But I think, so one thing that I've learned a lot about this year is the IB, uh, the International yeah. Baccalaureate, and uh, the different levels of that, The the I think the good parts of that, and also mm-hmm. the challenging parts of that, but the ways in which Every major organization is beginning to struggle, I think, with the realities of uh, learners having more freedom and agency. And that was the message that that I tried to bring to that particular conference. What was interesting for me there was, um, you know, I was like, I kind of tried to stir the pot. A lot of people came up to me afterwards because IB is pretty traditional and yep. uh, pretty conservative in terms of the way that uh, it rolls out what an education is, um, especially, obviously, in the high school level, at the DP level, but a lot of people came up and said, so, you know, they had Tony Wagner here last year, they've had Yang Zhao, they've had a lot of people who have a little bit of a different perspective on what schools should be, and I think there was a healthy tension that was a part of those conversations, and I I do think that those are probably happening in lots of different places now, not just with the IB, but. With, with lots of big organizations, you know, I mean, even to the extent where the SAT, ACT folks are, are now hearing of so many schools that are uh, dropping that requirement, really not pushing AP scores or AP courses any longer. So, I, I mean, I, I do think that there is this continuing to, there's a continually growing conversation around different rather than better. I'm not sure exactly the extent to which that's taken hold, but it's uh it's uh, people are definitely feeling like i said before a tension right now i think uh, of so, of the value of the traditional system
1: so do you think it's an inflection point in that people um n- know that that there is something different they should be doing but they're not sure what that is i mean did you see evidence for instance of people who said we know we we have to change and we know what we're going to do or do you think it, we're at that point that real uh, use the term inflection point, where people are just saying, we have to let go of a lot of what we have been doing, but we're really we're hanging on to it because we're not quite sure what it is we should be doing.
0: I'm not sure if it's because they don't know what they should be doing or whether they are waiting for permission, to be okay. honest with you. Oh,
1: that's interesting.
0: That's really interesting. I think, I think a lot of people know that there is an opportunity to be Uh, or to do much more interesting things in classrooms to to align practice much more to what they believe and what they know what they know good learning requires. But they're either waiting for permission from their school administrator or the school is waiting for permission from the organization um, or from the state or from, you know, someone else. To and maybe permission isn't the right word, but they're waiting for someone else to strip away some of the barriers. For instance, the the test, um, yep. and, and that's a big deal with ID in the high school level. You know, if you're doing the diploma program, it's all pretty much about that test. Yeah, and and again, that's I think uh, similar to all schools who at some point say, "Well, we'd love to be able to do that stuff, but." You know, as long as we have this test thing, we can't really change it up very much. So, I I think that there is a growing awareness that the the practice that practice needs to change. That the way we think about schools need to change. But uh, I think people still feel very constrained by those uh, those those big barriers that
1: have been around for a long long time. Is there a you think from you know and, and as I said you have been exposed well if you think about it to actually people from a, a very large range of countries. I mean, you're probably talking, you know, a, a big number of countries. And do you think across that broad cross-section, do you, did you get any feeling whilst they know there needs to be change? Is there any sense of urgency about that change?
0: I think the urgency is growing, but I'm not sure people know exactly how to articulate it. And, uh, you know, this is, again, something we were talking about last night in uh, in Change School, the the idea of how do, you, how do you make it so people have less of a fear of trying but also have more of a, a fear of not trying? And so the question is not so much can you articulate the compelling case, which I think more and more people are beginning to do, but then it's how do you break free of that legacy practice, that legacy thinking that is so deeply ingrained in what we do in schools? And so even though there may be a sense of urgency that urgency doesn't necessarily translate into change practice unless there's again, some stripping away of those barriers externally, but also a culture that supports people taking risks, a culture that expects people to take risks and try different things, a culture that trusts the process in terms of interesting learning will lead to those test scores or those outcomes that everybody wants. Yeah. It's, it's just, that's, that's the sticking point. There's no question about that. And I totally understand why
1: Uh, it's really hard to do. It's just hard work. So what do you think it will take? I mean, what do you think is the missing piece? What is the, what, what do you think it will take for people who know that they need to think and do something different, that they know that there is a need for change, that they know that their practice and, their model of school um, isn't aligned with their young people's needs for their lives outside school, what will it take?
0: I'm not sure what the tipping point is, to be honest, Bruce. I'll ask you the same thing here in a second. I'll get your response to that too, because it's interesting. There is a sense, I think, that if we change at a large scale, there's just a fear that uh, it won't work or that it will diminished our reputation, you know, that we built up. I think this goes back to the whole immunity of change conversation yeah. Um, yeah, that, you know, a lot of schools know what the right thing to do is, but just don't do it because it would, uh, it would really challenge their own existence in a lot of ways The the, the, the questions do become existential. And mm, so it's, it just requires so much courage, and commitment and faith and trust (laughs) and all that stuff.
1: You know, you and I talk about this all the time,
0: if it's actually possible to move an existing school to a place where it it is fundamentally different and is fundamentally operating on a principle of preparing kids for the world in which we live today um, that fully understands what the complexities of the world are, the challenges, the big questions, the changes, the contextual changes that we talk about all the time and then are, are able to take those ideas and those, those perceptions and turn them into changed practice. It's hard to do, what do you think? What's it gonna take?
1: Well, I'm, I'm just reflecting as you were talking there, because I was thinking, because you and I had discussion later, earlier today, and it, for instance, it, it isn't that there aren't examples or case studies or reference points available for people, because we know there are, and we know they're not exceptions in that when I say they're not exceptions, they're probably exceptions because there aren't a lot of people who have actually grabbed the mantle and and said, I'm going to do this. have had the courage of their convictions and their beliefs to go ahead and do it. But there are, as we know, a a wide number, uh, sorry, a, a large number of, not even a large number to be fair, a significant number of people across a diverse range of demographics and geographies, who are doing the work successfully, sustainably. So it isn't like you can't say, oh, there's only two people in the world who've done this and because they've got ridiculously exceptional circumstances there, we can't do that. We, we know that through particularly not only our work in, in speaking and workshops, but most profoundly through our work in change school, we know that there are significant numbers of people now who are taking on this challenge? So, that's my first comment: is that I don't. Obviously, we want to continue to build up those numbers, help people, support them, do whatever we can to to have more people who can be looked upon as as reference sites or lighthouse sites, or whatever you want to call them. But part of me, part of me also, though, and this is this is not particularly optimistic, but part of me wonders whether things have to get worse before they get better. Now I only say that because of my own country. Because in Australia at the moment, I've said this on the podcast before that I've I've seen us um I've seen Australia mimicking um, um a, mimicking the way in which America has, has changed and gone about you know high stakes assessment and and testing in ways that I could never have dreamed of 15 20 years ago and uh, and, and and just in like the last 48 hours you know even well we you know we've got problems so we're going to do more testing i mean it's sometimes i think i'm winding the clock back and believing i'm sitting in america 5 years ago so do we have <laughs> to get to a point where things are that bad that there's something absolutely and I mean, I know this this is, this is obviously, you know, part of change theory says that sometimes in some circumstances things do have to get that bad and dare I mention stock markets or financial markets to sort of <laughs> try and make the point um, on this day after a rather bad correction yesterday on Wall Street. But I think that, um, I worry that that might be the case. But the second piece of it is if we think about the kids and we think about the kids that are our, that are sort of the signals to us, that about this need for change. And when we talk about them, we, we of course start talking about the school dropouts, the school failures, the non-completions, all those sorts of figures. And you know, I've mentioned, I mentioned the book I wrote, I mentioned a lot of times, talk about them as the canaries in the coal mine. And these little canaries in the coal mine, yeah, they help us build the case. And there are dramatically larger numbers of these kids. That are now failing school at school. Sorry, I hate that too. Isn't that a shocker? I just you know they are failing school, but right. school's failing. School's failing them, and but they don't prove the case because we can always dismiss them because they're those kids. And I, I, I haven't mentioned this to you, but just I've actually at a very personal level in a very extreme case, um, um, through some through a very good close friend of mine. I've had to deal with a singular case of a young man who's just been completely left out of the system. He's 14. He's in year seven. He's been kept down. I don't know whether you'd know what kept down or repeated even is. I didn't even know any school system was stupid enough to do that to young people. But anyway, this young fellow has, he has no place in any school. He's been thrown out of three schools. So you look at a kid like that and what you can do for a kid. and, And by the way, this kid's a bright kid, you know. This this is nothing mentally deficient or whatever about this kid. And I'm thinking, this is not right. Right. Let's let's, let's agree that that he and his colleagues and, and kids in that space are are a smaller number than maybe would be indicative of a need for change. The ones that I worry about are the ones that are there and and appear to succeed in spite of school. And I think those kids, the in spite of school kids, firstly. They're a hard case to prove. Second, because how do you prove that a child's, you know, succeeded in spite of school? But I think they're massive numbers. And I think, you know, it's not that you and I have ever said that all kids completely, you know, don't engage at some level in school. We're never trying to talk in that universal level. But I know that there are massive, very large numbers of kids who could do so much better in their time in school. And yet we don't have the evidence. We don't have the dropout rates. We don't have the statistics. We don't have the data. We don't even have the stories of those kids because they're not stories that are easy to tell. And maybe that's what's missing. Maybe they're the kids that could become the the catalyst to that tipping point you were talking about that could help us realize there is a need for change now and it is an urgent need.
0: So a couple of things that we've been talking about this week, Bruce, that really speaks to what you just, uh, the story that you just told and, and the, you know, the ideas that you were talking about there. First, uh, a, a new book by Yuval Harari, um, who is the author of Sapiens and Homo Due and who has kind of burst on the scene as this very provocative thinker and historian uh, that is looking at a lot of the things that are happening in the world right now and, and speaking with great urgency yeah. about how, you know, the challenges that that are uh, facing us. And uh, he's got a new book out uh, that's called 21 Steps for the 21st Century, which... 21 um, Lessons. 21 Lessons, I'm sorry, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century that uh, I've been telling people to make sure they have an adult beverage on hand when they read it. <laughs> Um, But I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that in a second, because I think that really speaks to this urgency piece. And a lot of his writing about education is extremely provocative and challenging, but I think it's something that we have to think about. But the other is a video by Carol Black, who is someone who we've talked about in the past and certainly have referenced her blog post. She was the creator and uh, an early producer of a show called The Wonder Years here in the States um, back in the mid-80s, but has become a a very interesting advocate for rethinking education and for reminding us of how learning happens and the foundations for learning. So this video, which we'll post in in the show notes, has been on my mind almost constantly over the last couple of days since I watched it. I actually set out to try to transcribe it because sometimes okay. that, just works, that yep. just works better for me. But I want to read you a part of what um, she, she says in this video that I think is, uh, is very, very relevant to what you just talked about with that young man, but also speaks again to our common sense argument that we bring up all the time yep. um, about how sometimes how many things that we do in schools really don't make A lot of common sense. So here's here's the quote, and it's taken a little bit out of context, but I think that you'll understand it. It's a little bit long, but anyway, I think it's worth it. She says, any wildlife biologist knows that an animal will not develop normally if the environment is not compatible with the evolved social needs of its species. But we no longer know this about ourselves. We have radically altered our own evolved species behavior by artificially segregating children in same age peer groups during the day, by expecting them to be indoors and sedentary for most of the day, by asking them to learn from artificial text-based materials instead of contextualized real-world activities, by dictating Arbery timetables for learning instead of following the unfolding of a child's developmental readiness. Common sense should tell us that all of this is going to have complicated and unpredictable results, and in fact, it does, While some children seem able to function in this completely artificial environment, really significant numbers of them cannot. And every day around the world, millions and millions of normal, bright, healthy children are labeled as failures in ways that damage them for life. And increasingly, those who can't adapt to the artificial environment of school are diagnosed as brain disordered and drugged. And she goes on and she talks a lot about how indigenous people look at our systems of schooling with just shock, shock yeah. um, at, at how authoritarian they are. And she makes, I think, a very compelling point that this is simply not the way that kids learn in the real world, whether, whether that's in an Amazon rainforest or whether it's on you know, a city street Outside of this kind of very artificial environment that we create in schools, kids learn by doing, kids learn by experiencing things, kids learn by testing hypotheses, kids learn by failing, they learn by asking questions, and they have the agency to do that at the appropriate moment when they need to do those things or when they encounter those things in their lives. And, and so to me, that's a part of the compelling argument. And we've talked about this all the time. And the concern I have or the, the piece that I worry about a little bit is that I'm sure that there are people who just listen to me read that who feel affronted as teachers or educators. Like that is some personal indictment in terms of their work, who they are, what's happening in classrooms. And I'm sensitive to that right now because I sent out a tweet yesterday that was just about oh. how much how much kind of irrelevant curriculum that we're stuffing our kids in, into our kids heads at the expense of having a a working knowledge of the world that makes them literate enough to function yeah. um, you know especially in this country and i had a number of people come back to me and and come back at me saying that i was throwing teachers under the bus and it's not teachers fault that's not what i'm saying and by the way we're going to have to have we're going to have to be a little less sensitive i think um, in education, if we're gonna engage in some serious conversations about changing our roles and changing the work that we do. But to me, this is a, this is one part of the compelling case, and it goes back again to Russell Acoff, and it goes back to a whole bunch of people who we reference yep. all the time, yep. that at a fundamental level, what we're trying to do in schools is unnatural, and that it doesn't comport for so many kids to the ways in which they naturally experience the world. And I think that's uh, such a huge piece of this and real fast. And then I'll let you, you know, comment on that. But what I also think is interesting though, is she says, you know, there are numbers of kids who do succeed in this unnatural environment. My question is always, would those kids also succeed if they were given the freedom and agency to learn, you know, in real life or, are we doing such a good job of inculcating them to that artificial environment that, you know, to all of a sudden give them those opportunities would <laughs> kind of fall down in a heap and not really know what to do? I, I, I think personally, every kid could flourish with freedom and agency. And because I, I just think every kid lives in that natural learning environment before they come to school. But that's, that's a lot to unpack, I know. But I'm wondering what you think of all that.
1: Yeah, yeah, there is there is an enormous amount there. I, I just to start at the end of what you said. I think that you you hit and so did Carol Black hit the nail on the head when you said that you know oh well you know, x number of kids succeeded because you know we've got scientists and rock stars and sorry not rock stars right we've, succeeded they've succeeded put, they've succeeded, and and as you said I think the point the point to them is so what, firstly, let's just <laughs> take it. Let's just take it as accepted without even questioning it. You know, what number are we talking about? We, we are actually talking about, for the most part, a very, very, very small number of people. They are the exceptions. Secondly is your point. Are we really saying that those people who succeeded in the current environment wouldn't have not only succeeded but may have even done better if they'd had the environment that you're talking about, that Carol Black's talking about? Why wouldn't we? You know, I think that both of us have taught enough kids in enough environments. I certainly had kids that have an enormous range of backgrounds. And I would have said that, you know, as you said, if we created a natural learning environment for all kids, are we really suggesting that somehow there'd be some unnatural outcome for them? It just doesn't make sense. And yet part of the problem we have is, you know, dare I say it, where's the research to prove our case? Well, you know what, I think there's an enormous amount of research that debunks, undoes, calls out the failure of what we've been doing. The unnatural process that we've put kids through that Carol Black very articulately outlines. And it seems so, as you said, such common sense. And to go back to Aikoff, our focus repeatedly for hundreds of times over decades has been to continue to do the wrong thing Right. We just continually, every time we talk about some transformation or something new we're doing in schools, some innovation, all those words that have been used, all we've done is taken the existing model and put a new coat of paint over it. Not not at one point have we tried to examine the very foundation on which our schooling model is, our traditional, our factory, whatever you want to call it, schooling model is based. And that's why, you know, I think that, you know, you and I haven't tried to be you know, uh, wise beyond our years or whatever you want to call it. We're not trying to think we're that clever in what we're doing in change school. When we say, Hey, what about if you start with your beliefs around learning? I mean, isn't that common sense? That's the part that I think we find the hardest.
0: Yeah. And so she also brings up a really good point. I'm, I'm just going to bring this last piece in and then people can go watch the video because it's really great. It's only, <laughs> 50, it's only 15 minutes it's and I don't want to give, I don't wanna give the whole thing away, but it's uh-huh. really brilliant. But she, you know, just, just in that, she says, so we have all these people at high levels of the education department who are making generalizations about kids learning in schools. And, you know, the question is, why wouldn't we as education experts make generalizations about kids learning in the natural world. Why wouldn't we be doing that instead of, instead of really looking at how they learn in unnatural spaces? It, yeah. it just, we're, we're trying to force fit these, these environments into, you know what I'm saying, right? We're, we're trying to, we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Um, instead of looking at the the what the round peg might look like, I don't know if that metaphor makes any sense, but I think you know what I'm getting to right and yeah. so here's the quote but here's the here's just the best quote she says, making generalizations about how children learn based on their behavior in school is like making generalizations about killer whales based on their behavior at sea <laughs> like just it's just brilliant no one no one, no one would study killer whales in an artificial environment and attempt to understand what they're like in the natural world. That's right. But yet that's exactly what we try to do in schools. Yeah. We're trying to figure out kids and learning inside an artificial environment and then throw them out into a natural learning environment and think that they're prepared for that. And, yeah. and the other piece of it is too, when we say they've succeeded and we both used that word just a second ago, there, there are kids who have succeeded. I think that the question is what have they succeeded at? Yeah, And I think we talk about this all the time. Most kids have succeeded at school. That's right. Um, they, have, they are the ones who are able to figure out how to play that game and to go through that process. Now again, I just want to say it again. <laughs> We're not throwing teachers under the bus. We're not throwing educators under the bus. This is the system that we have. If there is some under the bus throwing of educators it's that not enough of them are standing up and making this case, not enough of them are standing up and saying what we're doing really needs to change because it doesn't comport to the way that we naturally learn. It just, this is not, you know what I mean? And, and I don't care if that means that they just do that intellectually or emotionally and nothing changes, but at least own it. That's where I do think that we need to, we need to have a little bit more courage, a little more spine, because I I just don't think that there's a a very compelling case at all that says that schools are the best learning environments that we can provide for kids. It's not to say that kids are being abused. It's not to say that, you know, they're not getting some value out of it. And it's not to say that there aren't powerful relationships that kids and teachers develop in school that are meaningful for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And neither one of us is saying we should get rid of schools or teachers or anything like that. I think what both of us are suggesting, however, is that now, especially in this moment, because of what's happened over the last 20 years and because of what the future portends, we have to now really begin to rethink this and to step back and do what makes sense for kids rather than um, trying to just hold on to this, this kind of dysfunctional legacy system that we've had that. Um, separates kids in winners and losers, and and uh, um, is in many ways, you know, not not a great
1: experience for them. Yeah, I think I think it's really good that you raised the point about the the preciousness that some people hold when we have these discussions, because I I don't know why I don't know why people don't think that this discussion, this conversation, isn't so important that they can let go of that. I mean, right. really and truly, we, we state categorically, we're not trying to attack educators or undermine their work. All we're simply saying is it time for us to re- reflect deeply about our practice and think very carefully about what we're doing and ask ourselves, are we doing the best for our young people? And at the same time, just before we move on to um, <laughs> talk about uh, Yuval Harari's book, just a couple of things, if I can, mate, just to mention to everyone that, when they go to look at the video, which is an amazing video by Carol Black, and we have, as we said, referred to her before. Make sure you also take time to have a look at her her website. Her past blogs have been extraordinary. She does some long posts. She did one was it called A Thousand Rivers, I think one of one of them was called They're amazing. They're just they're, she they're is extraordinary. she's a powerful writer. And the second one, quickly, um, in the best taste, and I'm, I'm sort of, I think this is now becoming okay for, um, for podcasts, is our, our little uh, mid, mid podcast um, promotion for uh, our modern learners labs that are coming up. Want to make sure that um, everybody who's listening to this podcast is aware that uh, Will and I are on the road. We can call it the uh, Modern Learners uh, Roadshow. Um, over the next few weeks, uh, we're doing a a series of labs um, looking at inquiry and agency in the modern world and in the modern classroom, the modern school. And we're starting on November the 8th in New York, and then over to Holliston, uh, up in Massachusetts, just outside Boston on November 9th. We're in Milwaukee in Wisconsin on November 12th, San Jose on uh, November 15th. And then we wrap it up um, in Chicago in on December 19. And if you'd like to know any more about that, go to modernlearners.com forward slash all a double dash labs. And we'll obviously put the links in the uh, show notes at the bottom of this. But in the meantime, let's get back to um, our discussions. And <laughs>
0: so I think we were just talking about like a little segue. It was a very, very, very smooth um, break there, Bruce, way to go. Um, I, I think we were just talking about not throwing teachers under the bus, right? So let's go ahead and throw teachers under the bus <laughs> because, <laughs> because so this this Twenty One Lessons for the Twenty First Century by Harari, the the education chapter is, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches. No. So let me let me just read a couple excerpts from this too, yep. and you know, so this whole book is basically about. Uh, this is what's coming, and this is how the world has changed, and, and as much as you can, you know, make a guess as to what the next 20, yep. 30, 40 years looks like, I think he he tries to make sense of all sorts of different things from religion to politics to um, artificial intelligence to, you know, all sorts of technologies, whatever else, all parts of life. So in the education section, he uh, he he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't really pull any punches and he basically just says, I think if you had to wrap it up in one sentence, we really only have one clear answer as to what kids will need to be able to do into the future. And the rest of it is just a crapshoot. We really have no idea. But the one thing that we do know is that they're going to have to be constantly, constantly, constantly learning. That's it. They're going to yep. have to be constantly reimagining who they are, Constant." Yep constantly reinventing themselves, constantly going deeply into what's happening and trying to make sense of it. They have to be literate, obviously, and able to do that. But basically, the uh, the, the whole concept of what we're doing in schools right now, and this, again, speaks to the urgency of this conversation. Um, this is the modern urgency of this conversation. I think Carol Black is the, the uh, historic urgency yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the conversation. This is the modern urgency. Is is that basically uh, what we're doing in schools right now? Is is not preparing kids. So let me read two paragraphs, and then yep. we'll have a conversation. Where he says basically, unfortunately, teaching kids to embrace the unknown while maintaining their mental balance is far more difficult than teaching them an the equation in physics or the causes of the First World War. You cannot learn resilience by reading a book or listening to a lecture. Teachers themselves usually lack the mental flexibility that the 21st century demands since they themselves are the product of the old educational system. So the best advice I can give to a 15 year old stuck in an outdated school somewhere in Mexico, India or Alabama is don't rely on the adults too much. Most of them mean well, but they just don't understand the world. In the past, it was a relatively safe bet to follow the adults because they knew the world quite well and the world changed slowly. But the 21st century is going to be different because of the increasing pace of change. You can never be certain whether what the adults are telling you is timeless wisdom or outdated bias. There you go.
1: Yeah, Yeah, not that way. Well, you know, I, I was interesting because I reflected back on that because we talked about this in preparation for this podcast and it was actually a, a comment by one of our change schoolers who's an amazing leader uh, today in one of our sessions that I think really builds on that. And it was Karen Gray who's over at uh, Hiata, uh, School, Community School over in, uh, in Christchurch. They're just doing an amazing... We've talked about them on this podcast before but she was talking about the need for a new kind of leadership um, you know, a modern leadership in this, in this age too. And and what she was talking about was that notion that if you think, go go back to the start of the century and you know, when technology came into schools, everyone was saying, well, you know, we've really got to embrace this technology and uh, you know, we've got to move move ahead with it. And in her words, she, she kept being told, but our teachers aren't ready yet. Our teachers aren't ready yet. And she's going, but our kids are. So, so why are we saying it's okay for us to wait until our teachers are ready? And she said, I'm getting the same pushback now. when I start saying our kids have got to be directing their own learning. They've got to be, you know, they've got to have agency. They've got to, they, we've got to help them divide, develop as learners in this, in this new world. And people well, oh, our, our teachers aren't ready. Well, you know what? Our kids can't wait. Right. Yep, and,
0: and so welcome to the moment, you know, and, yeah. and this is the, this is, we say this a lot, but this is not what people signed up for when they went into education, no. but the really hard end of that is, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're an educator, we are in education, is it not our responsibility to make sure that we are masters of the moment, you know, for lack of a better phrase, that we ourselves can function in this moment with a depth of literacy and understanding of the complexity and um, that it's not outdated bias that we are giving our kids now. And, and I, I think you know, that's the phrase in that excerpt that stuck with me. I mean, because I, I think by and large in education, we still have a decidedly 20th century lens on the world we think that the world operates. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we've got all these new teachers coming out and they're millennials and whatever else. <laughs> but not they're not thinking about that in an education sense. They're, they And they are, they are not, I don't know if they're trained out of that in pre-service, but I don't think they're prepared for that. And again, then they step into legacy systems where traditional practice rules, where the norms are not modern, and um, it's very difficult for a first or second year teacher to, you know, to kind of fly off on their own yeah. uh, when, they, when they want a job, they want, to, they want to keep their jobs. And so anyway, I, I just think it, it's a very, very difficult moment because we need to be able to say to our fellow educators, for lack of a better phrase, cowboy up, you know? I mean, you, you can't just say you're not ready. It, it's, that's not an acceptable answer. Um, you would never go to a doctor who's not ready, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like, well, we're just not ready for this new that's medical true. procedure. <laughs> I mean, that's just yeah. malpractice, that's malpractice. So that's the conversation we have to have. And, and I think the problem is, you know, when, when a lot of people get defensive around it is that we just don't have cultures in schools by and large. We don't have cultures in society that allow us to have these conversations very much right now, especially here in the States. You know, this is a, you, you think that the, the conversation around education is fraught. I mean, the education, I mean, the conversation around democracy is fraught in the United States right now. And, and so it's a big ask. I totally get that, but I don't know how, I don't know how we move into the future without being able to have those conversations and to, and to raise the, the expectations that we have on the people in classrooms.
1: So the question obviously comes back to, back to Harari's point, which he makes very, very clearly in that chapter. Why, why do you think we, we, and I'll talk about the collective education as educators, we would think that we would know what kids are going to need. Why would we think that one, we would know what, what they're going to need to be successful. And why would we think that, large parts of that are what we've used in the past. I mean, the logic of what I just said, there's no logic in it. It doesn't make any sense at all that we would think, well, because this has been valuable for the past 10, 20 years and people, I know some people on this listening to this will go, well, that's not the way. Yes, it is actually. I'm sorry that it absolutely is. And, you know, I could I could dr- jump on my hobby horse around the way we're teaching mathematics, which bears absolutely no relevance to the to mathematical needs of kids in society today. And people, you know, ranging from, from Wolfram to Steger to others of continuously quoting how ineffective and, and uh, impractical the teaching of mathematics is in our schools. But the teaching of science is probably the best example. It is absurd to think that somehow we believe that the... The content and the curriculum and the way we've structured science in the past is in any way going to prepare our young people for what they'll need in the future. So why is it so? What what is it that gives us this righteous view that we know best? That we know what 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 we know that what we've done in the past is what we'll need. Our students will need in the future.
0: So Bruce, well, you know, I think that's a great question. I think that. Um, th- I think we have to be, and this goes back again to one of my other favorite people who is um, Margaret Wheatley, who talks a lot about, you know, willing to be disturbed and willing to not know. I think that, I think part of it is fear, right? We want our kids to succeed. We we all want our kids to, to be healthy, to be happy, to have everything they need to, you know, go through the world and be successful. And it, this has worked to some extent in the past in terms of helping people be successful. Teachers are products of the system. And so I, I, I understand why we think that we know best, but the problem is, I and I just really believe this, the contexts have changed and yeah. the, the challenges and the problems that we have in the world are, are much different, much greater, much faster, and are going to require different skills, literacies, and dispositions from what we've had in the past. Carol Black, again, makes, you know, a great point in that video, and she doesn't quite say it this way, but she alludes to the idea that why aren't kids really studying the permafrost? Um, my my you know, new phrase is polynomials or permafrost. Which one is more important <laughs> for, for kids to navigate the world and, and to understand yeah. the world today? I mean, on my Twitter stream, if anybody's reading it, a few times a week, I have the hashtag new curriculum because there are just things going on in the world that I know we're not talking about in classrooms that we need to be talking about in classrooms. So I I don't know. I I think that, uh, I I think we're at a very interesting point. We keep saying that. And I I think the only way through it is that we have to be willing to learn our way through this as educators. We, we, you know, Missy's great favorite saying, which we're not really asking people to change as much as we're asking them to learn. And I think if, if we committed ourselves to, to learning in this moment, we would see a lot of, of these, these inconsistencies or a lot of these gaps between what kids need and what we do and what we believe and what we do and all that type of stuff.
1: I think it's, it's important that rather than be intimidated, fearful, overwhelmed by all of this, you know, educators, we would hope, would, would, would look upon it as an opportunity and be inspired. And that's, that's what I'd like to see. I'd, I'd like to see the profession be inspired and, and be excited by the opportunity that's before them because of all this. Um, and hopefully that's gonna that's what we're going to see coming through in the future.
0: Well, let's hope for some inspiration. I know you're going to get some on Monday, so you'll be even more inspired to do this work when you have another grandbaby in your arms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Hopefully, hopefully everything will go smoothly. And, uh, Thanks, Matt best to, to Ram and uh, and Josh and uh, and to you and Vic too enjoy the
1: Thanks,
0: day Pat. cheers, cheers.